You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. What do you think? Is the world going to hell in a handbasket? Or is Christ's church going to triumph over the powers of darkness in this age? What do you think? Did you know that what you think actually matters? What you think actually translates into how you live. There's this ancient concept in the church that is said in Latin, lex orandi, lex credendi. Any Latin scholars in the, in the room? I know that Elida t- actually teaches Latin in, in high school, right? right? Lex, what does lex mean? Anybody remember Latin? Lex? Brad, you, know, you, you were in Latin in high school. What's lex? Yes, law or rule. So law or law. Lex orandi, orandi is prayer. Lex orandi, so law or rule of prayer. And lex credendi, coming from the word credo, where we get the, the word creed, uh, belief. So lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of prayer is or becomes the law of belief and vice versa, lex credendi, lex orandi. Let me give you an example of this and that what you believe becomes what you pray or how you live. Before I do that, let me talk about prayer. We think of prayer as like, as like a petition. We think of prayer as the things that I say to God. So after someone prays, often we'll say, that was a good prayer, you know? But prayer is not just something that we say. Prayer is actually a posture. Let me sit back here. Prayer is actually a posture of our lives, okay? So there's this verse in scripture that says the spirit intercedes for us with groanings that words do not express. We recognize that prayer is more than just our words. It's actually a posture of our lives. The famous Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said after walking with Dr. Martin Martin Luther King Jr. to Selma, he said after that march, it's as if our legs were praying because praying is not just about our words, it's about how we live out our faith. That's what what prayer really is. So lex orandi, lex credendi, the idea that how we live out our prayers comes from what we believe and and then it informs what we believe and vice versa. Uh, when I was younger, I had a mentor who told me that I was dumb. And he was kind of joking. He wasn't being completely serious, but he would tell me this on occasion, that I was a dumb guy. And, and although, although he was saying it in, some, in jest, I kind of internalized it and sort of believed that I was dumb and never really thought much of myself academically. I got a low 3.0 in high school because it was relatively easy. And I thought to myself, you know, these people can fight out for the valedictorian theme thing. They're, they're the smart people. I'm not really interested in that stuff, a high GPA. So I went to college, I got like a 2.8. Again, not really applying myself, but who cares about my GPA because I'm dumb, you know? And dumb people don't get, you know, 4.0s, right? My senior year of college, I had a professor that said to me, Jonathan, you have a great mind. And I was kind of stunned. I just thought, you don't say. Believe it or not, Lex Credendi, I started believing that, particularly in his class, 
And my prayer life, the, the way that I was orienting my life in that class, it changed and I got an A. Not because this guy thought something about me, but because actually the what I believed about myself changed the way that I lived and I kind of lived into it, right? Well, then after that, that kind of spurred me on. I thought, you know, I didn't take undergrad very seriously. I should probably get a master's degree. Then I went on to get another one. Now I'm working on a PhD. This guy that once thought he was dumb, Lex Credendi, or yeah, had this sense of belief about me that once the belief changed, my action changed, but I also had to live into it. it it's, it's really, it's, it's, not, it's not just one or the other. Together, our thought life, what we contemplate, what we think, what we believe, translates into who we become. Uh, I was talking with my students uh, who I talk about this concept with and uh, there was a particularly difficult decision in my own life that I was wrestling with and I was telling them, you know, this decision that I make is actually going to shape my Christianity because if I choose to do the thing that I feel like God is calling me to do, then I'm going to believe more and more that that actually is the thing that God's calling me to do. But if I choose not to follow the thing that God's calling me to do, in some ways I'm going to be undoing my belief, kind of backing out of it, right? And this is the life of faith. It's Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi. Did you know that you were coming to Latin class today? But that's, that's how a life of faith works. What you believe becomes how you live. If you think the world's going to hell in a handbasket, you might be hunkering down in your house, buying some guns, stockpiling food. You know what I'm saying? But if you think Christ's church is going to triumph in this age, well, I guess most of you do assume that because look at where you are on Sunday morning, right? After, you know, possibly beginning of World War III, right? You're here, right? Which is good. You should be. But, but how, we, how we believe shapes how we live. Now, there are some of you that are expecting me to speak on Ezekiel 38 today, which is the prophecy that when there's war north of Israel, after all the Israelites have been regathered into Israel, then that's going to be the very end. And believe it or not, since 1948, since Israel became a nation, every time there's been a battle or a war north of the land of Israel, somebody has stood up that Sunday morning and said, this is it, okay? Well, that was 48, what was that? 74 years ago, right? So there's been a lot of people that have claimed that and died in the meantime, right? And so I don't, I don't know necessarily what um, all of this means as far as eschatology is concerned. And I would love to do a series of revelation with you sometime. Uh, the the uh, theologian Karl Barth said that every preacher ought to preach with the newspaper in one hand the newspaper, see the Kiev headline there? And the Bible in the other hand. And so today, for the first time in my life, I'm actually preaching with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the one hand. I feel like it would be not good for me to stand up here uh, to preach what I'm going to preach without just recognizing the turmoil that's going on in the world. But I also want you to understand that, that what you understand and what you think about the end actually, plays, actually determines how you live. And... If believing that Jesus is going to come back tomorrow because Russia is attacking the Ukraine is going to change the way that you're living, by golly, change the way that you're living. He's coming back tomorrow. You hear that? Okay. But we ought to already be living that way. That's why Jesus tells the parable of the, of the, uh, the, the servants that are waiting for the bride, the bride, bride or the bridegroom. What are they, who are they waiting for with the oil lamps? 
They're waiting, they're waiting with the oil lamps in, right? There are some of them that the oil runs out, right? And then the bridegroom comes. I don't know about you, but I'm praying, Lord, keep oil in my lamp, baby. Just keep oil in my lamp. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm leaning in, I'm living for you, keep oil in my lamp, all right? So for those of you who came disappointed uh, or hoping to hear on Ezekiel 38, I'm not preaching on that today, so you may want to leave. I'm going somewhere else, a different direction. Sorry. There's some great, there's some, listen, go on the internet. There's some great stuff out there about Ezekiel 38 this week, if you're interested. Actually, the text that I'm going to preach on is from 2 Corinthians. And so if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to go there with me. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter three. And I'm going to begin reading uh, from verse seven. This is Paul's exhortation to the early church. Here's what he has to say. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was. And I'll tell you a little bit about this episode in just a second. Uh, Paul's referencing a story from Exodus 34. Will not the ministry of the spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face or prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. So the story that Paul is referencing here in the beginning of this passage is the story of Moses receiving the 10 commandments the second time. Do you know about this? Why did, why did Moses receive the ten, ten Commandments a second time? Do you remember what he did with the first one? He broke them. Why did he break them? He was really angry. <laughs> he was really mad. He was mad because when he came down from the mountain, the Israelites had made a golden calf and started worshiping it and had completely forgot about the God who had just left, led them out of slavery in Egypt, right? So Moses comes down, he's got the 10 commandments. He's feeling really good about having convened with God and he sees this golden calf and he throws the 10 commandments. Apparently they were made out of some sort of soft rock and they busted. And uh, apparently he had to go back and get another pair, okay? So he goes, seriously, read your Bible. This is in Exodus 34. So he goes back up the mountain. He goes back up to Sinai to get another copy of the 10 commandments. 
And this is in verse 29 of Exodus 34. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. As he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. His face was glowing. When Aaron, that was his brother, the priest, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining and they were afraid to come near him. So Moses was face to face with God and the glory of God was so evident on Moses that he had to wear a veil because the people were afraid of the radiance of God's glory. It was too bright for them. Hey, Moses, can you wear a veil? We're all sick of wearing sunglasses over here, they were saying to him. So Moses actually wore a veil over his face so that those poor people wouldn't be afraid of the glory of God. So it wouldn't be awkward. So they wouldn't get too much glory on them. Maybe they thought it was toxic, you know? And Paul asks the question, if this ministry of Moses had glory, how much more glorious would our ministry be, those of us that have the spirit of the living God? Now, I want to make something clear. Paul does not say here that the ministry of the law had no glory. He doesn't say that. There obviously was glory here, and the glory came from Moses being in the very presence of God. Jesus did not come to abolish the ministry of the law. He says that himself. He says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. No, Jesus came to reveal to us the glory of God in real time because the law was not cutting it. It's not that the law was not true or that it wasn't effective in revealing the truth, but Moses dealt with the same issue that Jesus ended up dealing with when he came. That was the hardness of the hearts of religious people. You see, God didn't want Moses to be the only one that glowed with the glory of God. No, God wanted the people of Israel to glow with the glory of God. God has always wanted his people to glow with the glory of God. Which as I was reading that pa this passage, we kind of begged the question, do I glow? Do you glow? Do we glow? You know, Paul seems to think that people who are full of the Holy Spirit glow. He says that they are bold. I want to go to that third, that third section, starting in verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, but their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Do you know what turning to the Lord is called? Repenting, repenting. And what does Jesus come saying to religious people? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What does John the Baptist come saying to people? He's calling out in the des desert. Repent, right? Make straight the way for the Lord. The call 
of Moses is the same to religious people today. In North America in 2022, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In this, in this passage, there are two veils. One that is to hide the glory of God, uh, but the other, and, and, and that, that veil is superfluous, okay? It's not necessary. Um, the glory of God was not toxic. These people would not have gotten injured from the glory of God, right? Um, the veil is the hardness of hearts. It's the hardness that's, that's, over the, that's over the hearts of religious people. That's the veil that's the problem here. The veil that gets all the attention is the one that Moses puts on his face, the holy man. But the veil that ought to trouble us, the veil that ought to grip us, is the veil of the hardness of heart that kept the Israelites from living into and desiring the glory of God for themselves. Just like the people of Israel said to Moses, we can't handle the glory. There are always going to be religious people that give you a hard time for reflecting the glory of God. Do you know that? Sometimes when you feel God's calling you to do something radical, even religious people will give you a hard time. They'll say to you, hey man, you sure you're not missing it? I don't see anybody else doing that. Um, this, is, this is a problem in our age. We have become a religion of comparative Christianity where I, I look at other people and I gauge my holiness from them or on them. You know, Paul doesn't call us to comparative Christianity. He calls us to contemplative Christianity. And he calls us to contemplate the glory of God here. For some reason, we religious people get easily offended by other Christians that we, that we feel are living out their faith in more radical ways than we are. And I want to give you a clue towards Christian contentment today. Stop spending your time contemplating the glory of God in others and start contemplating the glory of God in you. Are you glowing? The question, the question that I asked myself this week is, am I glowing? Can people see it? Can they feel it? It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a tough question, right? What if the answer is no? It means I've got work to do, you know? It means I've got to start reorienting my life. Do you ever contemplate the Lord's glory? Do you ever do that? What would it even mean to contemplate the Lord's glory? What does that mean? Let's go to verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. So Paul assumes that we are contemplating the Lord's glory uh, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here, Paul implies, uh, this, is one of the, this is one of the places that we, we get a, str a stronger sense of Trinitarian theology. What Paul is implying here 
is that that God who made himself manifest or evident to Moses on the mountain in glory is the same spirit that Jesus says is going to fall on you and that descended on the believers at Pentecost. And what happened at Pentecost? The spirit fell with glory, right? And fire fell. Fire fell in the same way that fire was a, was a symbol of God's presence leading the people of Israel through the desert. In the same way that fire fell when Elijah prayed down uh, against the prophets of Baal. Did you know that internationally today, the church is, this, this Sunday is Transfiguration Sunday. Do, do you know what the Transfiguration was? We, we've, we've talked about it here many times before. It's that moment where uh, Jesus and Peter, James, and John, they go up on a mountain together and Jesus is transfigured. And what happens? He starts to glow. He starts to glow. And who comes but Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. And what does God say from the cloud in that moment of glory? He says, this is my son, listen to him. You've listened to the law, you've listened to the prophets, but this is my glory. And what does, what does John say at the prelude of his gospel? He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. I've shared my testimony before, a conversion after conversion that early in, my, early in my relationship with Kate, I just had this strong conviction that I did not know Jesus, that I was a follower of Jesus, but I did not know him. And I felt the spirit of God saying to me, get to know Jesus, dig into the gospels. You know what our problem is? Our problem is in a world in which we got this and this, we're listening to a whole lot more of this, you know? You know where you're gonna learn to know Jesus? Right here. It's not right here, you know? And I realize this is a paper copy. Some of you young people don't know what this is. Let me explain. This is a newspaper. <laughs> they, uh, they, they still print these off. People pay a um, dollar for this. They even get it delivered to their homes. So, no, yeah, young people, you're thinking to yourself, do they not know that they get it on their phone? Some people haven't figured that out yet. But, you know, I... I I kind of speak in jest. I, 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 do want to be, I do want to be attentive to current events in my own life. But I also, in these days, in these last days, I want to reflect the glory of God. I, I want people to see my life as a beacon that glows. Um... And I don't know, somebody asked me after the last service, do you think that Moses was kind of succumbing to put on the veil? Like, did he have to put on the veil? I don't know. It's kind of a good question. It's a fun question because the text doesn't imply that, you know, it's dangerous. It just kind of implies that it's socially annoying. You know, all these people are like, we're trying to talk to you and you're glowing. Can you, you know, can you, can you put a veil over your face? You know, I want to glow and not wear a veil. You know what I'm saying? I want you to see it. I want you to feel it. And do you know, you know what it means to contemplate the Lord's, Lord's glory, at least in my humble understanding? It means to know who Jesus is. 
needs to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, there are a lot of voices out there telling you who you ought to be in these days. If you contemplate the Lord's glory, you might just find yourself becoming a lot more like Jesus. Because quite honestly, that's what we desperately need in the world today. I don't mean to diminish the situation in Ukraine and in Russia, but the fact of the matter is there are still children in our community that desperately need homes. Um, there are still issues in your own family that might be resolved by you not contemplating the issues of everybody else, but just looking at yourself in the mirror and asking yourself the question, am I glowing? Can they see it? Right? Before every great revival or awakening in the history of the church, there have been mystics and contemplatives and prayer warriors that are documented spending time contemplating the Lord's glory. This is true. Whether it was Stephen, the first martyr, do you remember the story of Stephen as he's being stoned to death for his faith in Jesus Christ? What is he doing? He's contemplating the Lord's glory. He says that he sees heaven opened and the son of man sitting on the right hand of God. Or St. Anthony and St. Benedict, those early church fathers recognizing that the, the church was, was moving to a dangerous place of, of cultural, political power and influence, but also of war. Uh, they secluded themselves and they started to contemplate the Lord's glory and they developed monasteries that really for a thousand years would carry the heart of Christianity. Uh, these were very holy people that glowed so much that actually people in society asked them to maybe be a little bit more distant. I think of Hildegard of Bingen or Marguerite Perret, people that you probably haven't heard of, many of you. Um, but I would argue Luther's Reformation doesn't happen without their prayers, without their work, without their pushing. Marguerite Perret, as she was being burnt at the stake for thoughts that uh, she were understood to be heretical, which you and I would just say are just common Christianity today, uh, the rec record was that she was glowing. She had the radiance of the glory of God. I think of Fenelon, another uh, Catholic mystic, one who, who meditated on the things of God. He was very, very influential in uh, the thought life of John Wesley. He was very influential in the thinkers that brought about the, the first and the second great awakening. Somebody that, again, in history, we don't really talk about him that much. But all of these individuals had one thing in common. They dedicated their life to contemplating the Lord's glory. My concern for the church today, don't hear what I'm not saying. My concern, one of my concerns for the church today, now I'm, Clarifying what I'm saying. One of my concerns for the church today is that in becoming so action-oriented, we have become less devotional. We have become less concerned with our thought lives. We have become less concerned with contemplating the glory of God. We actually think that we can spend just as much time in this 
as we spend in this and that we're going to survive this age with integrity. That's a lie, just so you, just so you know, just so we're clear. If you wanna maintain integrity, if you wanna glow, you gotta spend more time in this. You've got to get to know the Lord. Uh, we, we have to, be, we have to go, become people that are contemplating the Lord's glory. I wanna make another connection, maybe bring this a little close to home. Do you know why the Israelites got so feisty and built a golden image, a, a gold calf? Do you know why they did that? Because their pastor left. I mean, I'm not, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That wasn't it. It was that their leader went up on a mountain. Seriously. What if, what if the people of Israel in the absence of Moses, what if they didn't spend their time building a golden calf? What if they spent their time contemplating the Lord's glory? Amen, somebody, you know? What would have happened? Maybe we wouldn't have had, had to get two copies, you know? Maybe one would have been sufficient. Did you know that the Church of the Nazarene in our polity, we actually are not a church that rises and falls on the, let me be careful here, on the necessarily the influence of just a leader. We are churches that call pastors into the work of God that is already going on in the community. In my lifetime, the church of uh, Lima Community Church has had four pastors. And I gotta tell you, at each one, for each one, there was another level of glory, baby. And, and there, were, there, were, there were dreams and visions and hopes that were fulfilled and that came about, not because these guys were incredibly brilliant, although they were, but because the people of God had spent time in prayer and anticipation contemplating the Lord's glory. And many of the ministries that began and happened in those years, they continue today. Not because those folks are still here, but because the work of God isn't just contingent on one leader. And, and I, I really do think that in these days, one of the greatest services that we can do for ourselves, for our children, for the future of our church, is to contemplate the Lord's glory, to meditate on his precepts, to get to know the Lord. The biggest veil that Moses dealt with was not the superfluous one to cover his face, but the veil of hardness of hearts of the religious people that he was leading. And my prayer in these days is not that the, my prayer in these days is that the events of our world do not distract us from a single-minded clarity of intention when it comes to contemplating the Lord's glory. I pray in these days that as we contemplate his glory, as we seek his will, as we seek his face, that we will be people that glow and that our community would, would see it and that they would know it and that they would feel it. My prayer for us in these days is that we will be people of glory that we will be people that glow. Amen. 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 Will you stand with me today?
as we conclude. I just want you to recognize that the, that same spirit, that same Lord that made Moses glow, he goes with you today. As you leave this place, we have met with the Lord today here, but the spirit of God goes with you. And if you'll listen, if you'll be attuned, you just might glow this week. Lord Jesus, we, as your people, we long to be attuned to your voice. Would you move in us and move among us in powerful ways? We pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. May your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. This week, this week may we contemplate your glory. And may we glow. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go in peace, knowing the power of the Spirit, and glow for the Lord this week. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.